always looking, uh, one of the premises of our work is how do we breach the bias? Everybody has a bias in anything. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. You have a bias. You know, one of my biases is I don't like mayonnaise. It's a bias. I have a bias against biases. Right. (laughs) Okay. Right. So we've all got these biases around things we like, don't like, you know, decide things about that are not true, whatever it might be. However, the, the thing for me that's interesting is in this bias is we have become, you know, as we've evolved, uh, even technologically, we've evolved to become a global society. You know, you were just talking about the dating pool now being able to be much bigger because you can reach out and be in a different environment. The same with the school districts. And for a while, and again, back to that tribal bullshit heads of ours, but for a while, you know, we were thinking more globally. We were thinking, we, you know, and we have this polarity now where people are thinking about the planet and they're being planetary thinking and they're talking about the environment and all those kinds of things. And they're talking about looking after refugees from other countries and pulling down borders. And on the other side of that, and by the way, I'm not saying either one of these is right or wrong yet. Um, on the other side of that is this such tribal mentality, us against them, build a wall, keep people separate, categorize people, shove them in a box, whatever it might be. So what I wonder is, because I've talked about this a lot in other conversations, is as we become more global, as that becomes more available to us, does that heighten this anxiety of us versus them for those kinds of people. So now we have two groups of people in the world um, who are who become very global thinking and those who become very tribal thinking. Because I think that a lot of this stuff, you know, as we talked about, it's that double-edged sword of, of technology. It can divide and it can really bring us together. You know, when you talk about that, that, dis, that breaking down of, of space of time of, of distance what do you think that's going to do to you know because we're seeing that rise so that's a ton of stuff i don't even know where to start um one is um I mean, you're right, right? Like the human brain does us versus them automatically, right? Mm-hmm. We're tr- and this is one of the things that's very interesting about flow because flow actually expands the us automatically. It, it sort of it extends empathy. It also extends ecological perspective, per, uh, perception, which means it extends the barriers of self to include plants, animals, and ecosystems, right? Um, so we're seeing a lot of that, but you know we're also seeing um, like phenomenal social justice movements, which are great, awesome, um, really a big fan. But every time, you know, we have ninety different names for sexuality, right? And um, and we have those names for very good reasons, right? The people want to be recognized, they they right, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is, the minute you put a name on something you trigger an us them reaction. Yes. That's how the brain is built, right? We do that automatically. So 
the act of literally sort of declaring your rights or declaring your right to have rights is the very thing that causes people to say, hey, wait a minute, different than me, us, them, right? So you have, this is just built in biology. This is just being human. These are things we just have to overcome. And I think what's interesting is technology is gonna help us overcome that. So at the end of the future is faster than you think. We pull back and we look at the century ahead. It's the only time in the book we do it. Instead of looking at the next 10 years, we look at the next 100. And the lens we look at it is through five great migrations that are already starting to unfold and will be unfolding over the next 100 years. And migration is really interesting because it is one of the largest drivers of innovation in history. Mm. And over and over and over again. People have fear of immigrants and migrations and all that stuff. And yet in America, immigrants are like 50% more likely to create new jobs rather than steal jobs, right? Like on and on and on, right? Migration is this enormous force for change and social good and all that stuff. Now we are looking, two of the migrations are really interesting because us versus them, maybe, but climate change and this is low end of the climate change spectrum. If we can cap warming at two degrees, it will produce 140 million climate refugees over the next 20 to 50 years. To put that in perspective, the largest mass migration in history was the separation of India and Pakistan, right? It was, depending on whose numbers, 18 to 20 million people on the move, another 8 million died along the way. Right, um, that was t what happens when 20 million people try to move. Imagine what happens when 140 million people try to move. Tokyo is the largest mega city on earth. It's 35 million inhabitants. So this is like seven Tokyos relocating around the globe over the next 30, 40 years. So like, like it or not, unless we are going to really, really work hard to reverse climate change, we are the us them is going to get a whole lot more mixed up thanks to the weather so that is coming no matter what we want simultaneously complete flip side we talk about then this is the last migration and it's a little bit of the, the most sci-fi ones but it's really interesting which is migration into collective consciousness hive mind a shared a shared cloud-based consciousness and this is coming too, and it's coming from brain-computer interfaces, which I, you know, I don't know how much you talk about what's going on in brain-computer interfaces on, on, on the show, but the cutting edge is getting you know, pretty cutting edge. Like back five, six years ago, paraplegics were moving cursors with their mind, then we were sending information long distance, you know, brain to brain through the internet. Now we're flying drones with our minds. We're making movies with our minds like we're it's getting really interesting and a lot of companies elon musk neuralace brian johnson's kernel a bunch of others facebook's very heavy into this a bunch of people are into this they want facebook wants us to be able to use our brain as the interface for social media right like but what this allows us to do is load our brains up into the cloud and mingle with other minds now that's where we are today. We think 15, 20 years, we might be able to send feelings and experiences and memories over the internet. 
And we're getting closer and closer. Like we can now record dreams and play back what the images that we see in dreams. Like we're getting really good at some of these things and it's crazy sci-fi sounding, but it's happening. And the, I all, whenever I look for, at technology, people get really fancy about what, like, what drives it forward. And I always look for simple human motives and loneliness is the modern killer. And if we can go online and commingle our minds and it gets rid of loneliness, we're going to go there. We're simple human behavioral, like we like being less lonely. Oh, I can do that there. It's what drove us onto the internet in the first place, right? It's what drove us into social media in the first place, this promise of, oh, it's going to be less lonely. Our network is bigger. We're more connected. More things are possible. That's coming with brain-computer interfaces. So I think, to answer your question, yes and no, right? Like we're going to get more of, I think, you know, and I think technology is going to introduce us to a, like, I, you know, I say this in, in last hang on cyberspace, my, my sci-fi novel, you know, we're going to discover hatreds, hatreds we didn't even know we had, right. right? Wait till we start doing human animal hybrids. And that's happening now, right? There are people trying to create cat's eyes for humans. There yep. are people trying to turn back on the genes that allow us to regrow tails. This stuff is happening. We're seeing, cyborg implants going into people those are going to grow right we're changing in ways we've never changed before and every time we change we discover a hatred we didn't know we had keep yermans pure right like instead of because we got cat's eyes right i mean like it's going to get really kooky um it's interesting because um and i really want to know what your research is showing but i mean in many ways, you know, I see the the division between science and religion becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, uh, uh, and, and not, and let me be clear: not spirituality, but religion, um, because we are becoming gods. I mean, if there was a book to write, it's we are becoming gods. It's the, you know, as you said, you know, we're de- we're designing. You know, we've got CRISPR where you can do genetic engineering in your in your in your bathroom you know we've got as you said people are uh, having uh, you know we used to th- you know we think of augmentation but most of us are augmented in some way you know you wear a pair of glasses that's augmentation from what we previously had or what we would quote naturally have you know you would go blind and that was all there was to it so as technology and we we accept certain things and certain things we don't so we're messing with we're messing with human life, and when we mess with human life, if we can do things when you're you're uh, in the womb and change and turn on genes and turn off genes and all those kinds of things, this fear, because again, I I, I really, in my study of psychology over all these years, forty years, the fascinating thing for me is polarity, this massive pull to polarity in human beings and we're either this or we're that you know and and, and that there isn't um i i don't actually believe there's such a thing as good and bad i think it's really what you're going to do with it for for yourself but then there's the requirement of a higher level of consciousness within you a higher level of order to call yourself to it so i have to decide if this is morally correct for me as opposed to morally correct based on 
religion or, or whatever it might be. And now we're into a subjective reality where the narcissistic sociopathic loony can say, well, my morals say, we'll just do this. Let's turn people into chihuahuas. I mean, you know, whatever it might be. And some of that might be good. So I'm really fascinated about, do you see that division? Because, I, you know, there seems to be this potential for a Luddite tribe and potential for a hyper uh, science and technology and advancement tribe. So there's, again, a ton there. I, I, I was reminded, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a huge devotee and fan of Nietzsche, of the work of Frederick Nietzsche, who is uh, kind of the world's first high-performance philosopher because he's the first philosopher after Darwin. So he's the first philosopher who goes, oh, my God, high-performance doesn't come from the gods. It's biology. It evolves, right? And one of the things that Nietzsche... Uh, you know, was really concerned with was this question of nihilism, which you just brought up, right? Like if Darwin kills off God, right? And God has shaped our morality and God is dead, right? What, and this is the existentialist mandate, right? You have yeah. to create and make your own choices and take responsibility for your own choices and, and make meaning for yourself because nobody can make it for you anymore. And so my point here is, not a new dilemma, right? Nietzsche was working on this in the 1870s. Um, so not a new dilemma. And uh, I think there will always be a backlash. I think, again, for really simple human uh, reasons, it's very hard to put technology back in the box. You don't, Pandora doesn't go back in the box, not for any fancy reason, but I think mostly because technology is the promise of hope. It's the promise of, I'm gonna make your life a little easier. And we are really attracted to a little easier. We right, like we like a little easier. Um, and it's really hard to say no to that. Um, but you know, that said, I also, you know, I, I'm not a particularly. I, I study technology. I'm fascinated by it. But I'm not a particularly whiz bang high tech guy. I, I tend to be a, a late adopter because technology usually costs me more time than it saves me. Um, and, you know, I, I'm very, I'm cautious around technology, but that's a personal preference. Um, but I, you know, nobody's forcing me to do anything. So I like Luddite maybe, but I think people are going to make more and more choices about, about this kind of thing. And I think we'll have, I think you'll see, you'll start to see lower tech communities and things along those lines, perhaps. Um, I, I, th I think that becomes possible um, as well. I, it's just super interesting to me. Yeah. I just, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I, I just find it fascinating. Me too. I, I, and I find the human interaction fascinating because as I said, at one side, I think you can, you're going to have the religious fundamentalist Luddite mentality. Um, and then you're going to have uh, maybe, maybe a middle ground of people who use technology and feel okay with it and at the same time you know uh, uh building farms on roofs in brooklyn you know doing the same you know so they're they're, they're working with it as as, I, as I, and i'll tell you something by the way yeah. interestingly i spoke at uh 
uh, it was called Farmer to Farmer. It's the largest gathering of independent, meaning not owned by agribusiness farmers in America. And together they control uh, land equivalent to the state of Iowa. So that powerful group of people, very powerful group of people. Um, and mostly they're getting their asses kicked, right? It's a hard time to be a farmer and they're up against agribusiness. And what they've done is they're pulling together and sharing data and taking a money ball approach in the same way that Billy Bean built the Oakland A's using data and statistics mm -hmm. to take on the, the, the big spenders. The farmers are starting to do the same thing. And what the reason I mention all this is I go into a lot of different rooms all over the world. Mm. As a general rule, the rooms I go into are not deeply religious. No. Um, uh, this was, and um, which, which like I, like I'm, I'm fine with that. I was, when I was a reporter, I, I covered religion. Um, cause sure. I was one of the guys you could, you could send to talk to anybody. Cause I was just fascinated. Sure. I'm fascinated why, why people believe things. And it's like, I don't judge, right? Like I don't. So I found this fascinating, but it's really interesting because it's the exact people you would expect to be Luddites. And instead they are trying to use technology and use data science and use AI and use drones and use everything to get out as far ahead as they can. Um, and they're bringing God along for the ride. That's an interesting term, isn't it? Bringing God along for the, for the ride. I mean, I just, I mean, I'm certainly not uh, disagreeable to anybody having any faith in anything. That's fine. Whatever you want to believe is, is terrific. But uh, my caution is always against when we have to make somebody else wrong or bad in the process. And that's, uh, uh, and I think that, you know, I, I you know, the, there are many uh, quote, and I put it in quotes because I don't know if it's a true context, but many quote Christians who see religion, uh, see science as a religion, you know, and, and that that's become the new religion. And I think that anytime we get extreme, you know, thinking, you know, like you, I'm fascinated with why people believe what they believe. That's why I'm always about preaching that bias. Why do you believe that? It's a question I ask all the time. Tell me, so what do you believe? And then somebody tells me, tell me why. You know, because my belief, my research shows clearly that um, all beliefs are lies. And people go, what do you mean? Well, you adopted them, you inherited them, or you, you base them on experiences that are subjective, but I don't know if they're absolutely true. And so people say, well, there must be some absolutely true. And I go, well, gravity, but only in the context of wherever it is. So gravity is true all over the planet Earth, but if you go out into space, gravity is still there, but it's not true in the same context in that it varies. So it's fascinating to me to look at why we believe what we believe. When you did your research around how, you know, flow states and all that, and even science and evolution, where, when, where do you see the, the, I'm really interested to know, where does belief come, is it part of that or does it not part of that? Well, so I went right at this in my second book, West of Jesus, uh, which is literally surfing science and the origin of belief. So I go right at this question and Certainly, 
so I think there are two really good answers to this question. And then there's a lot of like caveats and subcategories and whatever. So oh. one is, um, and this is not new thinking. Nietzsche said this, William James said this, Freud said this, Jung said this. Culture, what we mean by culture, is usually a bunch of evolutionary success stories, right? It's stuff that helped us survive at some point and that it got inculcated as belief. That's one. Two, we know that experiences that produce flow create beliefs. Ooh. The most, the people who score off the charts for overall life satisfaction, well-being, and meaning across the boards have always been the people with the most flow in their lives. So, and they, this is not, a lot of people have worked on this question of like, is belief part of what we mean by belief? Does it mean like that the experience was underpinned by dopamine, serotonin, a couple other neurochemicals, right? Mm -hmm. These seem to be, they, they're present when beliefs are formed. And, you know, I've done, um, I'll give you an example. I've done, I've done work with, uh, with, with the Department of Defense, the military, some of the militaries and some of the, some of the agencies around the idea that inside of terrorist training camps, for example, mm -hmm. what they're doing is they're putting people into flow. Yep. Right. Same thing in almost any cult. Right. They yep. put people into flow and then they teach them stuff. And pattern, we tend to believe what we write um, and it's accelerated learning. So both of those things, I think, are very, very true. Um, and. I tend to think that, you know, the third category and there's a lot of overlap is, of course, Throughout history, we've developed whole systems of for filtering truth, right? There was, you know, the logic was a system for filtering truth. The scientific method is a system for filtering truth. As a journalist, right, we were taught if you a source gives you a fact and you could find three other sources to confirm it, it's a fact. You can publish it. You can call it truth, right? Elon Musk in bold talks about first principles thinking, right? That's another truth filter. So I think um, we have a history of developing truth filters and using that as another way to get at beliefs. And I think there's some combination of that stuff that answers that question. I think it's a fascinating question though. Yeah, I, 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 I'm fascinated by belief and, and how we come to it and why we so I, I know we desperately hold on to it because of safety and the desire for safety. Well, it's it. I mean, it's, you know, I'll give you a simple example mm. that is really powerful though. Um, you've fallen in love before you're married, obviously. So you went through that romantic love period where you absolutely okay. believed your wife was the only woman in the entire history of the universe for you and she believed the same thing about you and yet when you dig underneath those beliefs right there's some personality mashing and some stuff there but mostly it's norepinephrine and dopamine yep. and if i put those chemicals into your system and i put them into somebody else's system and i introduce the two of you you're yeah. going to start to believe each other in each other in that way. That's the catalyst of PEA, phenylethylamine, and as you bring those together, 
um, if you put two people in the room together, this is why Timothy Leary said, don't get married six weeks after taking MDMA because <laughs> of the catalyst, because it, it catalyzes that drug release in your own brain and you fall in love. And then when the drug wears off, because all drugs are tachyphylactic, even the ones we produce ourselves, then you suddenly go, oh, you're a bit of a pain in the ass, really, aren't you? <laughs> That's fascinating stuff. I, I, I really love it. Hey, I just want to say I'm here with two-time Pulitzer Prize author, uh, director of the Flow Research Collective, Stephen Kotler. And if you're tuned in, I want to thank you for tuning in. This episode is brought to you by AMP, the collective uh, <laughs> AMP, connecting music, science, and stories together. And their book is Songs of Hope and Happiness. And it's the AMP Foundation at the uh, awesomemusicproject.com. Stephen, um, there's so much more that I, I want to go into. But one of the things I'm, I'm really fascinated with, if, if we have time to go here, is this, the understanding of empathy and evolution. Because, you know, we had a show on uh, a while ago around this, um, the connection between evolution and science and, you know, uh, the, the belief, uh, the, the two sides, one is this, um, that man is created by God and the other one is that God is created by man. Right. So I'm particularly fascinated by the other piece in this, which is the evolution of us as humans and this, as you talked about it earlier, this crisis of, of loneliness um, because we feel disconnected. So we've got all this technology that's allowed us to connect even more, which has in, in fact created a greater level of distance. And we've now got people talking about empathy and need for empathy and all the rest of it. And at the same time, kind of a, uh, a compassion fatigue on the other side of it because now you're supposed to care about the climate and you're supposed to care about the dolphins and you're supposed to care about plastic and you're supposed to care about this and that and there's a million things screaming at us for our empathy and for our compassion and for our for our focus as we move into this future that's coming faster than we think what's what what's been revealed to you in that research around those things Again, I've, no, I've, I've weaved in, as I tend to do, three questions at once. <laughs> You're a freaking train wreck. Um, all right, so, uh, man, there's a lot here, and I don't even you know. And I think this, you and I think so, the same way. All right, all so, right, six uh, things I want to pull into one. So, again, uh, back to animal behavior. Yeah. Um, this was uh, empathy is a great has been a great puzzle, right? Mm -hmm. Really great, great, great puzzle. And um, there was it, it the question of how does empathy evolve runs straight through twentieth century science goes all the way back to Darwin. It's this big argument, right? It's really super interesting. Um, a lot of it gets settled, but and solved, but. Um, you know, there are, there are a number of cool questions. One, um, you know, Robin Wright, I think was the first person I was aware of pointed out in the nineties, wrote a book called non-zero fantastic book that says, Hey, humans seem to be evolving away from 
uh, zero-sum games into non-zero games, right? Zero-sum games is somebody wins, somebody loses. Right. Non-zero-sum, either everybody wins or everybody loses. Climate change is a non-zero game, right? We're either all going to win or we're all going to lose, right? So that's interesting. Steven Pinker has pointed out that we are living in the most peaceful time in human history, right? And there is work out of the Harvard Development Project that shows that millennials have more empathy uh, at age 30, or did have more empathy at age 30, as my generation, Gen Xers, had at age 40 or 50, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of interesting things going on that seem to show we are evolving more empathy, right? This could be random right. or, right, or who knows, but we, it's interesting. So that's a chunkier question. Mm -hmm. You know, in, uh, in Last Tango in Cyberspace, I make the argument that um, empathy for all has to be what we mean. So empathy for plants, animals, and ecosystems, right? It's got to it's gotta extend beyond the barriers of species if we're going to survive the environmental challenges in front of us. Um, I think that's the sort of... It based It has, yeah, I mean, it has to be... At least at this point. At least at this point, it has to be mandatory at that level. Um, and I think we're capable of it. You know, it's interesting because flow is one of the very few things that automatically expands empathy. Mm -hmm. um, and ecological awareness. Um, and it, you know, it also turns out it's surprisingly easy to train empathy, right? Um, and we're getting technology, Jeremy Bailenson at Stanford has done phenomenal work using VR to produce really significant empathy. And that produces behavioral change that lasts a very long time on the back end. So he has developed VR simulations that can change your color and your age. And you want to experience what it's like to be a 50 year old homeless African American woman on the streets of Baltimore. He's got a VR simulation for you. Right. And um, they've used similar simulations with the UN to show them what life inside um, a refugee camp in Syria was like. Right. And, and by the way, people come out of these simulations and what do we see? We donations go up to charities and, and such over time. So there's actual, um, they, it's not just, I feel more empathy, empathy, it's that you're willing to act on that empathy. Yes. Um, so it is trainable. It is starting to get woven more into the curriculums of schools and things along those lines. And yes, of course, we've got empathy fatigue, right? Because the pendulum always swings both ways. As you know, we went, we were totally over here one way, now we're totally over here. And then we're going to come back and, you know, we end up somewhere in the middle. And, you know, that's the dialectic, according to Hegel, right? That's what we do. We go back and forth and back and forth like that.